Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Hey, Money Movers, welcome back to Money Moves, the daily podcast determined to give you the keys to the kingdom of financial stability, wealth, and abundance. Hey, Money Movers, welcome back to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood. Our next guest is the founder and CEO of Walker & Company. Many of you might know this as Bevel Brands. He also serves on the board of director for Foot Locker Inc., Shake Shack Inc., and the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Board of Directors. In addition, Fortune Magazine has named him one of the top 50 of the world's greatest leaders. In 2018, his company, Walker & Company Brands, was acquired by Procter & Gamble. This led him to become the first black CEO under the Procter & Gamble umbrella in its 180-year history. This is an incredible feat, and I'm so excited to welcome to the podcast today, Mr. Tristan Walker. Tristan, how are you? What's up, Tanya? I'm doing well. Good I'm to see you. I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> no doubt. No, excited to be here. Okay, so first of all, you are known throughout the community as the founder of Bevel Brands. So this iconic black male men's shaving, I mean, brand, you just really put it out on the map. But here you are today with a beard. So I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I haven't seen you with a beard before. 
You know, I'm growing up. My wife likes it. I'll take it, though. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I want to take us back and I want to dive into your story because I think it's an incredible story and your trajectory and sort of where you came from. People need to know that this is not an overnight sensation to selling this incredible company, making a whole lot of money and being, you know, one of the first black CEOs under Procter & Gamble. So, like, take us to the beginning, little Tristan. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm very blessed, very fortunate. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very lucky to be here. Look, I'm, I'm a kid from Queens, New York, born and raised. Um, you know, I grew up in the projects, welfare, all that stuff, right? And I realized when I was young, you know, I had one goal in life, and that was to get as wealthy as I could get as quickly as I can get it, right? I knew I didn't want to go back to that. And I felt at an early age, there were really only three ways to do it. And uh, the first was to be an actor and athlete. I played ball, um, but I was also good at math and realized that I wasn't going to make it all the way through. <laughs> the second way was to work on Wall Street. I had the good fortune uh, to do that, um, but I hated it. And, and the last one that I actually realized was entrepreneurship. So I was yeah. like, oh, man, like I got to figure this out. Um, it's really the only way. So I really started from this humble beginning with this hunger, right, uh, to get out of that and, and kind of earn my wealth uh, mm -hmm. over time. And that really set me on this path towards some of that wealth accretion and accumulation. So like, that's really interesting to me. And on Money Moves, we like to talk about this, like the generational impressions that are left with us. So you're this kid, um, you know, growing up on welfare in New York, but you had this idea of what wealthy was and you knew you had to do something different to get out of the hood. So what was the yeah. next step for you? Was it, you know, lessons from your mom, your dad? Like, how did you really know that you needed to execute on that vision? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't know what wealth was until I was about 14 years old. I knew what... Um, being rich looked like <laughs> from television. Right. Uh, but it wasn't until I turned 14, I went to a boarding school for, for high school, a full scholarship. And it was one of the top uh, kind of schools in the country called the Hotchkiss School. And yeah, I got to see how the other half lived. I went to school at Rockefellers, right? And Fords, right? People where their last names actually meant something. Wow, um, that's major. And their wealth carried, yeah, their wealth carried in generations, right? So at that point, I was like, wow, you know, I want this Walker name to mean something. And it has mm. such a profound impact on me. Mm. I mean, when you put the Walker name next to Rockefellers and like the Bronfmans, that's, that's a major thing, especially, you know, being exposed to that at a, such a young age. I mean, that just propels your grind level and the hustle to a whole yeah. next level. So you're at this yeah. ritzy boarding school. Just for people out there, how did this little black kid get into or even know about those boarding schools or get into that, you know? Yeah, I am a story of blessing and very good luck, honestly, Tanya. Like, I um, I went to this after-school program, the Boys Club of New York. Yeah, I remember in order to get in, I had to pay 75 cents for my card to get it. And that was, like, the greatest investment in my entire life. Boys Club had uh, what was called an education program, right? Um, and you had to take uh, an SSAT. So these are exams to potentially introduce you to those boarding schools. I did decently well on it. I had good grades. I remember I um, kind of turned in my exam and the proctor was like, oh, you know, I saw you the other day. Like, tell me about your school grades. I told him he was like, listen, I got you. Um, and literally a couple months later, I was on campus at Hoskins touring the school. And that week I got an offer wow. um, and it completely changed my life. Seventy five cents completely changed wow. the entire. Okay, were you life. the only black kid? Maybe one or two others? In at the Boys of New York or Hotchkiss? Uh, the private school, Hotchkiss, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there were probably, gosh, there was a um, school, 500 people in the entire school. There were probably 15 to 20 of us overall across all the That's grades, right? So in my grade, there were probably five or six or so. Yeah. 
And, you know, I, I talk about, I grew up in Canada, so the upbringing is really different, but you mm -hmm. know, there's, those are just moments where you can either be like, oh man, there's not enough of me out there, but if you can find mentorship and find the lessons in that, like, look where it's now taking you. So after that, yeah. what came next on this path? Well, even to, to go back on that more important, it was, um, what I saw and what I knew I could compete with. Right. Cause I was like, man, like these kids have the names but I can compete with them at every level. And that was all the inspiration that I needed. So, you know, what came next? I actually, I ended up in university, right? Uh, I went to Stony Brook University out in New York um, and I was in a rush to get out. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I graduated, I was an economics major. I graduated in three years uh, at the top of my class. I was like, I gotta get out of here because um, I had to pursue that second thing that I told you for wealth creation, which was Wall Street. And so every <laughs> single thing Wall that Street. I did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, every single thing, every internship I had in university, uh, every goal that I had was to be a trader on Wall Street. I was like, these guys make so much money. Yep. I knew people who were retiring when they were 30, 31. You know, it is a job where you're judged against your ability to make money every single day. And it felt as objective as can be. And I did it. I realized I wasn't very good at it. And I also hated the culture of it. <laughs> um, and, and two years after that, I actually got laid off. Um, and it was at the same time that I was applying to business school. And, you know, you talk about, again, blessing and luck. Yep. The day that I got laid off was the exact same day that I got a call telling me I was going, getting into Stanford business Ooh, school. Ooh, yeah. That's a great school. Yeah, yeah it worked out. Yeah, <laughs> it worked not out. bad. That's a great choice. Okay, so now you're on the West Coast now. You're at Stanford. I mean, that's definitely the place to be. Tell me about how that impacted, you know, this pivot to, okay, I'm leaving Wall Street and I've got to do something else. Yeah, you know, I, um, Stanford was the only place I applied, you know, and it was the only place I applied for a reason because, you know, I wanted to get as far away from Wall Street, literally and figuratively <laughs> as possible. Like, you know, Wall Street, Atlantic Ocean, Stanford, Pacific Ocean, there's like no other school <laughs> that can get as far away from it. And I knew they had this, um, this reputation for entrepreneurship. I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley. I didn't really care to know about Silicon Valley. Wow. Um, so, you know, I had nine months from the time I got laid off to the time I actually kind of matriculated into the school to learn about it. Um, and once I landed down, you know, I said, I'm going to be a part of this, right? Like I saw, I was 24 at the time. I saw other 24 year olds when I was there, not only making millions of dollars, but fundamentally changing the world. Um, and very quickly, I said, you know world, what? In the business world, because I mean, a lot of people, you know, you're 24, like the Valley didn't become as popular, I think in urban culture, pop culture, like yeah. I'm going to put it back to maybe eight or nine years ago. So how long? Ago yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we, so I went to um, Stanford starting in 2008 and I yeah. remember my first, my first role in Silicon Valley, I was at Twitter when there were about 20 people at the company. I remember telling my classmates about this thing called Twitter, and they were like, why are you doing that? Like, this is crazy. Like, what that service is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I hope and the I buddy in the audience understand, like, the OG lines you're dropping here. Because, like, now, <laughs> you know, everyone from Jay-Z to Nas is talking about investing in tech and the Valley and this, that, and the other. So to be out there when Twitter was, like, 20 people and we're talking about Foursquare, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a crazy time. I mean, it was... It was a time of um, inflection and transition. Yeah. And that's where, that's where I thought, I thought I knew what wealth was. And I, I thought I knew it from Wall Street, but I didn't really understand it until I got to Silicon Valley, where I saw, again, 24-year-olds like billionaires, right? That, that had such a, a different impact on me. And then the thing that I recall very quickly was that this Stanford Business School experience was the same as my Hotchkiss boarding school experience. I'm just grown up. 
And it was something I had seen before and I knew I could compete with all those people within it. So I competed. Yes. All right. So fast forward us, you've now, what I also think is interesting is like, you've laid this foundation from early on. You're like, I know where I need to go to be around the right people to change the way I think. Then you end up in Stanford so you can further expand. Now you've done your time at these early stage startups. And so at what point did you realize you wanted to launch your own company? Yeah, I realized that when I was five years old, <laughs> you know, honestly. It, it was, you know, I just had to go to this roundabout way to get there. I remember wow. I was five, my, my, my brother would tell me to go to the store and I'd like charge him commission for that. Like that set me on this path uh, to making my money in my way. Um, and, and also, look, I, I was not able to hold on to a job myself working for other people ever, <laughs> right? Um, until I started my own. And there's a power in ownership that I really do believe in, particularly for black folks. So, you know, I was at Foursquare for about three years. And I remember, um, you know, I loved the company. I felt like I was even a founder myself. I was the yeah. first, one of the first employees there. It was a great, great time. And I remember I said, I have to, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I set a calendar invite on Dennis, the founder's calendar, six months out, because I knew that's when I had to tell him that I was going to leave. Um, and then six months passed, this thing popped up on my calendar. It was like, oh, like, I got to make this happen. So I said, you know what, Dennis, like, this is my time. I learned a lot. I thank you for this. But, you know, now it's time to try. Um, and, <laughs> and really the next month, yeah, the next month I set on my path to start what became Walker and Company, which I'm very, very fortunate to have done. Wow. Talk about yeah. your time, because um, I know you did a small stint at Andreessen Horowitz. Horowitz as an EIR. And sometimes people are wondering, like, you know, should I just start at 22 and be an entrepreneur? Do I put my time in to go to Stanford or, you know, and I feel like you've been really intentional about accumulating experiences and knowledge and connections. Um, yeah. Talk about being an EIR there. Yeah. So I think, you know, first off what you said, I try not to waste my time. You know, I think that yeah, I've learned from an early age that you, know, you got to have that tunnel vision for exactly what you want. You know, the EIR thing was a bit fortuitous for a couple of reasons. Number one, I needed to earn money. You know, I had a, I had a mortgage, I have a wife at home, a kid on the way, right? So the realities of my reality was a part of that, right? Like, you know, I didn't make so much money uh, at all from kind of the tech journey that I mm -hmm. went on. Like, I actually have responsibility. Uh, secondly, if I was going to kind of go on this journey, I needed time and space to think about what I wanted to do. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas. Most of them are bad, but I knew I needed to chase the thing that I actually had some authenticity to. So, you know, my being an entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Howard's allowed me to do it. But let me let me explain very quickly what being an EIR entrepreneur yeah. in residence is, because I know it's, it's crazy. So usually it takes one of two paths. You go to a venture capital firm. In my case, it was Andreessen Howard's. And you can either spend the time that you have, six to nine months, to think of an idea, which is what I did, and start it, potentially get funded by them. Or um, you could partner with the venture capitalists mm -hmm. to go source deals for them, partner with their portfolio company, stuff like that. And I mentioned a little earlier, I didn't want to waste my time. So I did the former <laughs> versus the latter. Yeah. Um, and the first seven months of the nine months that I was there, you know, I, I like to say I was, I was wasting their time because I was thinking about things that I probably shouldn't have been working on, right? Like... You know, I wanted to you know, fix freight and trucking in this country, which didn't make any sense. I had no understanding of that. I wanted to do something in healthcare that I had no experience with. And it wasn't until, you know, seven months in that I was shaving and I got fed up with that experience. that I said, you know what, maybe let's try to give this a shot. Um, you know, I told the partners there that, like, this is what I wanted to do. They had an itch for what I was thinking about. 
Um, and then two months later, I raised some money for it and the rest is history. But I spent nine months there to think and also to earn because that was my reality at yep. the time. Okay, so Bevel is truly an iconic black brand. And I will say that because oh, thank you. it's what you've created. You took, you know, the classic problem that black men, Latino men, you know, suffered from all the time, you know, whether or not how to shave, how to shave. And you created a product that was just undeniable in the marketplace and then went around the valley where, let's just be frank, it's all these pale white males going, listen, this is a big deal. I need your money. I need you to fund this and I need it to be in stores across the entire country. Like, that's, right. that's incredible. Um, yeah, thank you, Tim. Yeah. Appreciate so tell it. us about, you know, OK, you had this light bulb moment, you were shaving and you're like, I'm going to fix razor bumps for black men. <laughs> You know, it's funny, when I, when I was doing it, I wasn't even thinking about doing it as a business. I just wanted to fix the problem for myself, truth be told. I mean, I, um, this was a January, it's in January 2013. Um, yeah, I was using a depilatory cream on my face for like 15 yep. years that like destroyed my skin, All of them, smell, the skins, burn. This, this is like a hundred year old problem. The worst. Yeah, it's the worst, right? And I remember going to an artist shaving store and asking them what to use. And they told me to use this device that like very few people use called the single blade razor. Mm -hmm. I used it, didn't break out, and I knew I had an epiphany. And then I decided to go out and start start the business. You know, the, the thing that I had to get over for myself was like, you know, did I want to be the dude, the black dude in Silicon Valley, building things for black folks, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, what the hell are you thinking about, Tristan? Like, this is what you need to be doing um, because you have a unique perspective. Yep. You know, my, my very first pitch, um, I was nervous as all hell. You know, I was speaking to um, you know, a wonderful woman who I've gotten to know as a venture capitalist. She's on the other side of the table. And, you know, I had one slide uh, on my deck and it had proactive, the acne system yep. on one side. And on the other side, it had bevel, the shave system to help eliminate razor bumps. And I said, you know, we want to replicate what, what they did. And she looked at me and she said, Tristan, I'm not sure solving issues related to razor bumps will have as profound an impact as solving issues related to acne. So I can't see it. And, and at that point I was like, okay, like I get it. But all that you had to do was get on the phone with 10 black folks. Yep. Eight of them would have said that this is a crazy issue. And let's yep. assume you don't even know 10 black folks, which is a problem all in of itself. But let's assume you didn't. And you got on the phone with 10 non-black folks, four of them would have said the exact same thing. So I recognized that it wasn't that my, my idea was bad. Yep. It was the fact that the people who had the money were too lazy to recognize that it was good. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And at that point, I just realized I just had to keep going, keep going. And eventually, after all those pitches, um, you know, we had some great venture capitalists that were willing to take a bet. Um, so something entrepreneurs often come to me with the difference is like, how do I know my idea is good or bad versus like, you know, being able to go out and come back with data talking about customer discovery. And I think that's one of the things that's hard because people really get stuck in their feelings and like, I know my idea is good, but yeah. you backed it up with like, I have the research, here's the data, here's the people, here's the customer testimonials. Um, yeah, even, even a little bit different. Um, look, I, I believe a couple of things. First, I believe there's no such things as bad ideas. Mm -hmm. It's just bad timing sometimes, mm. right? Uh, sometimes That's the market hasn't caught up. Yep. But also, I think there are a lot of ideas that people think are good, which probably are good, but they shouldn't be the ones doing them. Ooh. And the, the thing that, um, you know, was a good filter for me, and I had some advice on this, and I still believe it to this day, and this goes back to some, it explains my focus a little bit, Jane. It's, I feel that you should only be doing the thing that you fundamentally feel based on your lived experience, you're the best person in the world to do, yeah. right? 
Now, this sounds like a bit of a tall order, right? Uh, but just reflect on my experience for a bit. You know, I was a black man in Silicon Valley. There aren't that many of us back then, by the way, who could raise the money yep. for this problem that I had authentically for 15 years when I'd walk down these retail aisles, feel neglected, that sort of thing. At that time in 2013, I felt that I was the best person on earth to start that company. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm probably not the best person on earth to start it today, but I was back then. And I think it's important for people to recognize like their lived experience. You might have a, a better idea for how to wipe your ass with toilet paper yeah. straight up, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of people shake, like um, stray away from that. And then I, I try and tell folks, well, someone invented toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's making, and I think a lot of people um, try and chase what they think they should be doing as opposed to chasing what they fundamentally and authentically should. Does that make sense? Oh, no, completely. And it's one of those lessons that people, I think, hear all the time. And until it clicks, does everything become clear? And it's kind of like the C's part. And you're like, man, all that time that I put in, like going to this school and this, it all makes sense. And it's like that tunnel yeah. vision becomes clear. So it's well, like Well, we, we've got to learn. we got to unlearn some things. Like, yeah. I, I think we... For up until that point, for 24 years, by the time I got to Stanford, and even the years after, we had this, you know, idea: follow your dreams, follow your dreams. Yep. And honestly, I think that that is the most dangerous advice that anyone could ever have. Really, for for two reasons. The first, um, you know, sometimes you think dreams are dreams, but they actually end up being nightmares. <laughs> and then the, the second thing is it 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 blocks your ability to see what you are authentically positioned to do. Yep. I didn't dream to start a health and beauty products company. I never would have, right. but I should have. Yeah, oh no, that's really great. Okay, so now you're at the point where you're, I don't know whether to go, if we go like product development or fundraising, like, and they're both really hard things to tackle and scale, um, yeah. but because fundraising is such a, you know, dynamic question now and it's like a hot topic with black lives matter and what we've gone through with the pandemic and there's so many people who were like how is black people can't fundraise and this you know i think it's changed now but can you talk about how it was going out uh fundraising yeah i mean i've got so much to say about this i um i'll tell you a little bit how it was fundraising i'll tell you a little bit about my point of view around fundraising now um look it was hard i had venture capitalists who I had known for five years up to that point, telling me, Tristan, whatever you do, I'm going to fund it. And to go to them and say, hey, I have something that's ready. And, you know, to combat their laziness, like they were unwilling to fund it. So it's yeah. like, oh, damn, like, you know, you had been promising me this for this whole time, but now you're kind of going to pull back. And I was like, all right, bet. Like, I think I had pitched, gosh, like 30, 40 people at that point, yeah. and only three said yes. And we started with a company that needed two and a half million dollars in order to get started, right? Um, but before I raised a cent in funding, mm -hmm. I had pretty much gotten about $200,000 of work done for free, right? Wow. Um, so I had, to, I had to pitch what this was going to be. Um, but at the time, you know, about two months before I started pitching, I found a manufacturer that was willing to make me samples for free. Uh, the way I found that manufacturer, I went to a website that had a list of all private label manufacturers, closed my eyes, pointed to a screen, released it and saw that that person's name called her up. Um, and she said that she was willing to make them for free. So I got formulations for free. What? I had a, a, a designer who um, I had known who was from IDEO. He said, Tristan, cool. I will make you some designs for free. Uh, if you want these designs and own the intellectual property, you just have to pay me $10,000. Wow. 
if you don't do that, then I keep them. So when I raised the money, I paid them $10,000 and I kept it, but I had the designs to show. And then I had a friend who was a, like a brand logo designer who usually charges tens or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for this to give me a shot, right? So I think the important part of that too is sometimes you got to do the upfront work before the fundraising starts. Yes. So my fundraising experience, I've raised between Walker and Company, Co2040, my not-for-profit, tens and tens of millions of dollars. Um, but, um, you know, this is kind of the fast forward to today. I regret it. Um, I regret every bit of it. I, I think fundraising can be as dangerous as, um, you know, gosh, like, you know, as anything <laughs> when you're running the business, because now you're forced to chase the growth yeah. that you might not be ready for. And I strongly encourage people to really think, think about that need and giving up your ownership right, uh, to chase a growth that you might not be ready for. Okay, so like go a little bit deeper into explain that because there's a difference. Mm -hmm. I think what you're trying to say is like the difference between fundraising and going after revenue. Is that right? Because yeah. then you're not tied yeah. to like, oh, I got to raise again. I can't scale. And you know, it's like this endless loop. Yeah. So let me give you some math. Um, you know, I raised $40 million for Walker and Company, right? Usually venture capitalists want like a 10x return, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is simple math, like, yeah. you know, 40 times 10, like, you know, you should be expected to, you know, sell your company for $400 million. Yeah. Those, those valuations that you exit at are based on revenue or profitability that you have, right? Um, so if you raise this money mm -hmm. at too high of a valuation and your revenues cannot support that, if you're getting to a point where you don't have as much money in the bank, folks are unwilling to give you more of it. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, you're losing your ownership along the way. So it puts you in this like very weird position where you realize and wake up, I don't have the majority of my business anymore. Um, I, it's hard for me to fundraise and fuel my growth. Should I go and shut everything down, lay off my team, get to profitability, or should I go and try and sell to someone else? These are things that you probably would not have to think about yeah. if you bootstrapped yourself, if you had the luxury to be able to. So let me kind of preface it by saying that too. But if you can do it, I would do it. And there's something to be said about ownership and autonomy yes. that I've learned to appreciate. Um, and you know, I will never take that back. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Tanya. The, um, when I sold my company, we announced it on December 12th of 2018. And at that point, very quickly, I, I recognized what freedom was. Um, like I defined it. And, and to me, for this fleeting moment, I felt freedom is not owing anybody anything. Yeah. Right? When I sold my company, I didn't owe my investors anything. I didn't owe our people anything. I didn't owe Procter & Gamble anything. Wow. <laughs> right? That's really that rare, is, too. Like what you're saying, like yeah. it brings me back to, remember those old commercials like Freedom 55? Like, yes. <laughs> You're, but that like financial and wealth freedom. And I think for entrepreneurs too, like that doesn't happen a lot. A lot of times people sell, they have to stay there for four or five years, work in the business, vest, this, that, and the other. So like, that's a, that's a good deal that you negotiated. Yeah. I think, look, it's, um, you know, wealth doesn't have to be the end goal for everybody. Not everybody has the, the fortune that I did. Yeah. Right. But there's something to be said about autonomy and not owing anybody anything. There's a, a feeling of freedom. You know, a lot of folks ask, you know, you know, who inspires you, Tristan? 
I'm like, listen, the kind of couple that's been running an HVAC business in the Midwest for 20 years, they yes. own all of it and they're generating like $2 million in cash flow a year. Yes. That to me is like my nirvana, you know? And I think we're caught up in, in the headline, right? This person sold for a billion dollars, right? But we, we don't read the fine print. Yeah, that person sold for a billion dollars. They have less than 1% of the company. Right. (laughs) And now on the other side, they sell the company. They won't be able to get their money for four or five years. Right. Like there's a lot of fine print that goes into that. So the point that I'm trying to make is forget the money. I think that there's something to be said about kind of owning your own autonomy. And we felt we felt free for a while. Right. But we've never had freedom until we don't owe anybody. anything. Yeah. I love that. That's really great. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like this has been such a joy talking to you. I love what you do. I love what you continue to do. And I love the mindset that you put behind it. And so I think, you know, our Money Moves audience is going to be grateful just to hear from you and to continue to follow you and your journey and what you continue to build. Can you tell our audience where they can find you on social media? Sure. I'm just at Tristan Walker, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, Instagram, Twitter, all that. (laughs) And where can they find Bevel? Everywhere. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, you can either go to getbevel.com, we're in Target, we're in Walmart, we're in Sally Beauty, everywhere. <laughs> That's incredible. Money Movers, that is all the time we have for today. Make sure you tune in Monday to Friday and subscribe to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood so that you can have the keys to the financial freedom you so rightly deserve. Thank you so much for tuning in, Money Moves audience. If you want more or a recap of this episode, please go to thebankgreenwood.com and check out the Money Moves podcast blog.